Um, so as Mark said, my name's Emma. I'm a member here at Christ Central. And usually when I teach at Kids Club, and this is what I say when I speak to the women, I don't have, when I speak at Kids Club, I don't get to have notes. I have to learn it off by heart. So this is always, this is a privilege. I get to have my notes in front of me. And it really is a privilege to speak to you this morning, especially on Good Friday. Um, I wonder, how do you get through hard things? Who here has done an exam or a test or a presentation? Is it fun? No. (laughs) Most of the time it isn't. You have to work hard, revise like mad, and then sit the test or exam, give the speech or presentation with your hands going like this. Um, And whenever I had to sit a big exam, how I got through it, top tip, (laughs) I'd always have to talk to myself and make it seem less of a big deal, thinking there are lots of people not sitting sitting in exam today, just going about their normal lives. The sun will still rise tomorrow, Tonight, I'll be eating supper as usual. Whether I pass or fail, life will still go on. Most of all, I'd be thinking it will be worth it in the end. And we put ourselves through these tests because our aim is to learn or because we want a particular qualification, we want to get a job. There's an aim and a goal which helps us to endure and have the discipline to work hard and succeed. Of course, there are much harder things we endure in this life. Whatever it is we face, we do sacrifice things to get a desired result. But most of the time, we do these things to benefit ourselves. Though, we do celebrate those who, um, and admire those who make sacrifices for others. It's just nice if they do it. (laughs) Um, But do you know where we get this characteristic from? From God, who is the ultimate in patience, and persistent endurance, and nowhere do we see this more than the cross of Christ. God, if you read through the Bible, God plays the long game. So what about God? What motivates him? We've been singing about it. Everything I'm saying this morning, we have sung already. I'm just going <laughs> to tell you that. What motivated Jesus to endure the cross? Why even was it necessary for him to go through that for us? The answers tell us about who God is and what he is like. I read a book recently and it said, the death of Jesus in all its redeeming power also shows us the truth about God, us, and everything. So I may not get to everything this morning, but we will be taking a brief look at what the cross tells us about God, us, and what this redeeming power of the cross means for us. I want to do this in the context of a verse from Hebrews. And Hebrews is a letter written to Jewish converts to Christianity who were suffering persecution for their belief in Jesus. And its overall message is that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than the old covenant. He's better than Moses. He's better than any high priest before. And Hebrews 11, the writer lists many Old Testament characters who lived by faith, who endured many things, but believed God for what was promised. And at the end of this hall of faith, chapter 11 ends, and we get these first two verses of chapter of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And I'm going to read these and then follow it with Matthew 27, 27 to 54. And if you have your Bible, you can follow along in there. The words are going to be on the screen. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So in the light of that, let's read um, the account of the crucifixion. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You, who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon... Until about three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on the staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. I hope and pray this message today will be an encouragement and an invitation. An encouragement to those who are already in the race and an invitation to those who are not yet in it. You know, you can be in church but not really in it. For years as a kid, I knew all the stories of the Bible. I knew about Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus. 
I loved the romance of the Christmas story. It filled me with wonder. I knew the rest, but I didn't really understand it until one day I realized it did have something to do with me, and I had to do, I had to respond. The same book that I read the quote from earlier, The Death of Jesus in All Its Redeeming Power, also shows us the truth about God, us, and everything. And they go on to say um, in, the same pa- um, in the same passage, from the cross, a light shines on every other event and person in history, every doctrine and every passage in scripture. So if the cross shines a light on every event and person in history, then that includes you and me right here today. The cross is the central pivot point of history. It's of cosmic significance to everything in all of creation. And there's no way in a few short minutes we can look at every doctrine and every passage in scripture. I'm not going to try. But I'm taking a few minutes to reflect on what motivated God, what motivated Jesus to die for us and for us to understand what brings Jesus the greatest joy, what was the joy set before him. But to understand what Jesus did on the cross, we have to rewind to the very beginning of the story, to the first few chapters of Genesis. And then the first few verses of the Bible, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work in creation. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. John 1 in the New Testament identifies Jesus as the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through him. And we need to understand that God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is complete in himself. He has no need for anything and no lack. He has life in himself, that's in John 5, 26. He's uncreated everything else. Everything else is created. And Gary put it so well when he preached a couple of Sundays ago where he talked about when God revealed his name to Moses on Mount Sinai. Sinai, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God's nature loves to give, to love, and so inevitably it moves outwards. He created the world out of love, Father, Son, and Spirit, God three in one. They were together at the beginning and created the heavens and the earth. He made order out of chaos and created life. And on the earth, they made this am- well, he, he made this amazing garden called Eden that was abundant with life. And on day six, God made man and woman. As we know, he blessed them and placed them in this beautiful garden, gave them a job to do, to go forth and multiply and fill the earth. They were meant to carry God's blessing to the world. They knew God's presence with them, and he gave them one command. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And most of you know the story. We know the story. What did Adam and Eve do? Eve was tempted by the serpent. He placed doubt in her mind. He twisted God's words and said, did God really say? So instead of trusting the God who made them, Adam and Eve chose to determine good and evil for themselves. They took the fruit and ate it. And the Bible says they hid from God. They'd never done that before. They'd sinned and they felt shame. 
for the first time. They failed to uphold their commitment to God at the first hurdle and evil entered God's good world. And because of their sin, humans became separated from God. God God cast them out of the garden. But this is where we first see God's mercy. Because God could have wiped them out then and there. But he didn't. He closed them. They didn't have access to the tree of life anymore. They had to go and work the ground. Childbirth got painful. The relationship between God and man was broken. The relationship between man and woman, and like our relations vertically, were broken. Vertically, horizontally. I've got them mixed up. (laughs) Um, We read on through Genesis and things spiral downward pretty quickly. And within a generation, there's the first murder, and so it goes on. And the Bible tells us that the problem of sin from the fall onwards infects us all. We're all born into sin. We all choose to defy God and determine good and evil for ourselves, to live for ourselves rather than God. It's in our DNA. Every generation, every person. God can justifiably wipe us out. The wages of sin is death. But he chooses time and time again to make a way for people to know him. And we get the first hint of God's plan as God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. Because as he speaks to the serpent, the devil, he says, I will put enmity enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God has a rescue plan. One day someone will come who will crush the serpent's head, but there will be sacrifice. The serpent will bruise his heel. God loves and he leans towards mercy and forgiveness, but he is also just. We know from our own experience that when someone is wronged, when a crime is committed, we demand justice. And God is a just God. Righteousness and justice uphold his throne. Sin is serious. It has to be dealt with. God cannot just brush it under the carpet. Now, under the old covenant, because of sin and uncleanness, God's people could not just come into his presence. Blood had to be shed to cover sin. And in ancient times, when people made agreements, they would slaughter animals as a witness between the two parties to that agreement. It was a common thing. The seriousness of blood being shed meant something. It meant a promise had been made, and it was serious to break it. To our 21st century sensibilities, it just sounds gross. And if you're reading through the, like the, the Bible, you're like, there's so much blood! Um, But under the old covenant, animals became a substitute to take the punishment for sin, and the sprinkled blood made people clean. But it's no coincidence that Jesus is crucified at Passover time. The Jews celebrated the time God brought them out of Egypt, when the blood of a lamb dabbed on their doorposts protected them from the angel of death, killing the firstborn. John the Baptist exclaims when he sees Jesus, look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And once God's people were delivered from Egypt, God gave the people laws to follow and rules about what sacrifices to bring to God. Only the priests could minister these to God. And once a year, the high priest would only be able to enter through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, which was in the tent of meeting and later the temple. To do that, he would have to sacrifice a goat for the people's sins and let another goat free in the desert to symbolize God removing the people's sins. 
but none of these sacrifices of animals could deal with sin permanently. No animal was perfect enough for that. It was a temporary fix. It covered the sins and cleansed people on the outside, but it didn't deal with the main problem, the human heart. The covenant was meant to inspire obedience, but though God made good promises, God's people were unable to keep their commitment to God. And all through the story of the Old Testament, we see God pursuing a people for himself. Time and again, God is faithful. Time and again, the people are unfaithful. And then in the midst of the story, we see glimpses of what is to come. There are promises throughout scripture about a Messiah, someone who will save God's people, someone who will deal with our hearts, that one who will crush the head of the serpent and conquer sin and death. Our sin is a problem. God is perfect, and the simple fact is we cannot be near God without our sin being dealt with. It's like getting too close to the sun. In the brightness of God's purity and goodness, we see how unclean we are. And that's what Isaiah, Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, exclaims when he has a vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6. It describes how when Isaiah sees God, he says, Woe to me! I am a man of unclean lips. In the presence of God's goodness and holiness, our sin is evident. Romans 3.23 tells us that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we're honest, sometimes we feel like we're okay. The world tells us, especially these days, follow your heart, do what feels good. Surely if we do enough good things, it will outweigh the bad. And when we just compare ourselves to the next person, we just have to be a little bit better than them. But the Bible is honest with us. We are not okay by ourselves. Compared to God, we all fail. All our good works are like filthy rags because our motives are so soaked in sin. So a number of years ago, quite a number of years ago, uh, with the church we were part of in Lance, it was a new church plant in the UK. I was in my late teens, early 20s, and we did what you might call a, um, a flash mob crucifixion in the town, in the town centre. I have a picture. And we actually did it in Worthing and Lansing and Brighton and then later at Stony Bible Week. Um, I don't know if we actually got permission from the town to do it. Um, But I was a wailing woman. You can see me on there (laughs) giving it my all. Don't know if that's biblical at all. (laughs) But it added to the drama and drew attention. And there's another couple of pictures, I think, just there. You can see someone, like, accusing Jesus, and then Jesus on the cross. But the thing is, all of us like to think that we'd be, that when I was that person, like, wailing, we all like to think that we'd be the one mourning Jesus. But when I was doing that the first time we did it in Worthing Town Centre, I looked up and realized when it came to it, When Jesus was actually crucified, I would more likely be one of the mockers. Like him, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Peter said he would never leave Jesus, but ended up denying him. And all of his followers fled. And we all have, we all have denied Jesus with the way we live our lives. So here we are at the foot of the cross. None of the disciples expected their journey with Jesus to take this turn. They, like others, expected the Messiah, the promised one, to be a freedom fighter, to free them from occupation. But Jesus came to fight for freedom in another way, 
in such an unexpected way. The writer to the Hebrews doesn't want us to fix our eyes on the heroes of the faith who came before, but in light of all that came before, to fix our eyes on Jesus. From the moment Jesus is born on this earth as a man, fully God, yet fully man, Jesus is a pioneer of our faith. He goes first. He lives a perfect life. The Bible tells us that he was tempted in every way that we are, every way, yet was without sin. Where Adam failed and every one of us fails, he does not. He obeys God. Jesus shows us what God is like. And in Hebrews 1.3, it says, Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory. What Jesus does on earth shows us exactly what God is like. He does nothing apart from the Father what the Father shows him to do. He heals, he sets people free, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised. He brings life wherever he goes. We can sometimes make the mistake of looking at Jesus on the cross and seeing God the Father as the wrathful one and Jesus as the loving and compassionate one. But Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of him. So when Jesus is on the cross, we see a God who suffers with us and is for us. He bears it all for us. The wrath that we deserve is laid on him. As we've sung already, he solves the problem of sin himself. The Bible describes Jesus as the perfect lamb of God. He did not sin, and yet he dies on the cross. To the disciples, it seemed like the mission was a failure, but this is what Jesus came to do all along, to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, to fulfill all the scriptures, to suffer on a cross, and bear unimaginable agony and shame to take our punishment. Mocked, spat on, exposed, beaten, to do what we were not capable of. We could do nothing about our sin. In fact, the Bible says we are dead in sin. Can't do a thing if you're dead. And that's the truth about us, that the cross shines on us. We were hopeless, we couldn't do a thing to save ourselves, but Jesus did it. All our human efforts at, right, at righteousness are condemned at the cross. Jesus bears them all, and we see that we can do nothing but believe. That's the hope we have. God does not, does not want us to rely on our own intelligence, morality, or our abilities, but on his goodness alone. You know what is great? The end was never in doubt. It was just as promised throughout scripture. Jesus, the Messiah, would always be the victor, but the suffering and the battle was real, and it was brutal and bloody, and in ways we'll never fully understand or know. He experienced God the Father turning his back on him, something he had never known in all of eternity, and we don't have to experience that. As he dies, the curtain in the temple is torn in two, and now we can all go into the presence of God. There's now no longer a barrier. We can all enter in because Jesus is the pioneer of our faith. We go through him to God. He did what no other sacrifice could do. He took our place. His death and his blood shed on the cross gave a never-ending supply of grace and forgiveness for us. Following Jesus isn't easy. Jesus bore a cross, and he asks everyone who follows him to take up their cross and follow him. But because he endured, we too can endure. And he doesn't leave us alone. He's also the perfecter of our faith. He's the completer and finisher. Faith is a gift and he gives us his spirit who enables us to live for him. Spoiler for Sunday, Jesus rises again. He conquers death, 
And we have that hope too. Oh. So what is the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and scorned the shame? Was it just to be reunited with his father and back enjoying the Trinity? I think it's more than that. Earlier in Hebrews, it mentions Jesus bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Remember God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His character is to bless and to forgive and love. His joy is when people turn to him and draw from his abundant and never-ending supply of grace and mercy. The joy set before him is seeing us repent and turn to him, to have a people for himself who he loves to share his goodness and grace, to have a multitude with him in heaven. That's why he died. And when we first come to Jesus and repent, turn from our sins, he forgives us because he took the punishment on the cross. He transforms our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He does what we couldn't do for ourselves. And when we subsequently fail, we can come back again to him. And he loves it when we do. It brings him such joy. So to finish, there's an invitation. Maybe you're like I was as a child. I thought I was a Christian because I was taken to church and it's what we did. We prayed and read our Bibles and so on. But maybe like I did one day when I was 11, 40 years ago, <laughs> last week, today you realize simply that your sin is a problem and that Jesus alone is the answer. That you've been living a life on your terms and now the sunshine light of the cross, Jesus on the cross, you see that that's not going to end well. Today you can choose to become a follower of Jesus to repent and receive his never-ending supply of grace. For many of us, we're in the race already, but maybe we're hiding, and maybe we feel like Jesus might have run out of patience and forgiveness for us. We've failed too many times. But the fact is, because of the cross, Jesus does have a never-ending supply of forgiveness and grace. He loves to forgive and heal us once again as we're part of his body. We're not taking from him or draining him. He abundantly pours out his perfect love on us. It's the very reason he died. All the way through preparing this, I've had the words of Matt Redman's song, Mercy, going through my head. And uh, the good news of the cross and all that Jesus has achieved for us causes us to worship him, as we did this morning. And I think we're going to sing this whilst we take communion in a minute. But I'll just read the words, uh, if I can. <laughs> I will kneel in the dust at the foot of the cross, where mercy paid for me, where the wrath I deserve, it is gone, it has passed. Easier to sing it, your blood has hidden me. Mercy, mercy, as endless as the sea, I'll sing your alleluia for all eternity. I think that's all I can <laughs> manage. I'm not gonna try the rest. I'll just be a puddle on the floor. <laughs> so I'll just pray, and I think I'm handing over to Joe. Lord, I thank you so much for your sacrifice on the cross, Lord God. I thank you, Lord, that you have given everything for us, Lord God. And I thank you that it's your joy when we come to you and ask for forgiveness, Lord God, even if it's again and again. So, Lord, I pray this morning we would just be encouraged, Lord God, to come to you, Lord God, and receive your goodness and your grace. Amen.